well, here we are in December already, and um, uh, we're in the fourth week of Isaiah, so this has been uh, a wonderful study for me, and I hope it's been wonderful for you as well. Uh, it seems like, I don't know if you've noticed it, it seems like references to Isaiah have been popping up everywhere <laughs> recently. <laughs> uh, I was talking to Randy this morning, it's not... This has not been master planned by Calvary. This is far too clever for, <laughs> for us to come up with. So um, the reason why Jen taught on Isaiah 9, why Randy taught uh, on Isaiah 42 last week, just pure providence of God. So it's been wonderful. Um, so we're in Isaiah, the fourth week this week. And if you look at the top of your outline, uh, we've been trying to take a broad view of Isaiah and then zoom in in certain portions. And week one was really just an introduction where I introduced the whole book, the 66 chapters, when it was written, who wrote it, the major themes. And then we zoomed in on chapter six in verse two, talking about the holiness of God. Last week, chapter uh, week three, we zoomed in on uh, chapters 22 and 24 on the theme of judgment. And today, we're going to be talking about salvation via the servant. So um, I've been talking with a few of you, and many of you have said that Isaiah is one of your favorite books, if not your favorite from the Old Testament. And when I ask you why, uh, multiple of you have said it's because of all the prophetic references to the Messiah, and there are many, and we're going to be talking about them today. So why don't uh, I go ahead and pray, and then we will jump in. Father, we are um, eager to read your word this morning, to hear what you would have us to learn. Father, we want to see Christ exalted this morning. We want to see your plan of salvation, the vicarious substitutionary death of Christ on behalf of us sinful people. Father, would you exalt Christ this morning? Would you help us to understand your word um, that we may glorify you more. So, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, if, if you only could have one chapter from Isaiah, what chapter would you choose? And you don't have to choose the one that we're going to be talking about today. But one chapter, just be honest, if you could pick one chapter, what would you choose? 41? 53? Any others? Six, 41, 53, six, and the others? What was that? 40, 40. yeah. Yeah, that's right. 50, those are all incredibly important passages. Um, the one we're going to be reading today, maybe, if, if I had to choose one, I think it would be uh, chapter 53. If I had to choose one chapter in all of Isaiah, if I could keep one chapter... And I had to get, if I had to get rid of all of the others and keep one, I think it would be chapter 53. And this chapter is incredibly important. And I'm going to try and set the bar as high as I can before we even read it of how important this chapter is. And let me tell you some reasons why. First of all, this chapter is the most quoted chapter from Isaiah in the New Testament. Okay? So before we even read it, that should tell us for some reason, the New Testament authors thought that this chapter was extremely important above all the others. Uh, chapter 40 is the second most, 
quoted in the New Testament. But we know that all of God's Word is inspired, so one chapter is not necessarily more inspired than another chapter, though uh, they have greater significances, potentially. Okay, let me talk about the structure of Isaiah. You remember, there's really two halves of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, and then chapters 40 through 66. If you think about it, the exact middle of chapters 40 through 66 is chapter 53. So Isaiah has placed this chapter in the middle of the second half of his message, again, highlighting the importance of this particular chapter amongst all of the others that he's writing. Um, Let me set the bar even higher, okay? This chapter we're about to read is the fullest and clearest message of the substitutionary death of Christ in the whole Bible, even surpassing passages in the New Testament. This chapter is fuller, clearer, and, um, uh, than, than all other passages in the New Testament. Okay? It is amazing. It was written 700 years before Christ came, and yet... Uh, One commentator I read said that it looks as if it was written beneath the cross of Golgotha. As we read it, you'll see it's written like a first-hand account 700 years before he came. And in that sense, it surpasses the fullness and the extent of some of even the New Testament passages that talk about um, the crucifixion of Christ. So, with that... um, Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 is worthy of spending um, more than just one morning studying, but that's what we'll do this morning. I want to break up our time together into the forest and the trees, okay? Do you understand that reference? The forest and the trees. Uh, This class is a a survey of Isaiah, so we don't want to lose the overall flow of what Isaiah is doing. But I also want to spend time digging into chapter 53. So we're first going to start with the forest, get a big picture overview of what Isaiah is doing here, and then we'll zoom into the tree of chapter 53. So first, uh, the forest. So as I mentioned, uh, the first 39 chapters are primarily judgment, and um, I I want you to turn to chapter 1 for a minute here. Because although the first 39 chapters are primarily judgment, as I've mentioned, Isaiah weaves in hope and uh, future salvation all throughout the first half of the book. And let me show you the first time he does that. If you look at verse 8, sorry, let me again just set the context of judgment in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And he continues, the whole first uh, chapter is full of judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. But look, if you will, at verse 18. This is curious. Verse 18. Come now, 
Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they're red, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is a mystery to us. How is it that this people who are so sinful that they have despised the Holy One of Israel, how is it that God can turn their sins from red to white? Okay? And um, the mis- this is the mystery and really a big problem uh, of really the whole Old Testament. How is it that a holy God, uh, how is it that a sinful man can stand before a holy God, and how is it that God can forgive a sinful man and still be holy and just? This is a big problem that Isaiah does not answer for a long time in his book, okay? But there are glimpses here and there, and I've listed them on your uh, paper there. There are glimpses in the first half of Isaiah that someone will be coming who will bridge the gap between this corrupt people and a redeemed, forgiven people, and yet still allow God to be holy and just, In chapter 4, we read about, I'm just listing out what's on your outline here. Chapter 4, we read about the branch of the Lord, this mysterious figure we really aren't given much information about. Chapter 6, we're told about this burning coal. When Isaiah confessed his sin, the seraphim brought this coal and says, your iniquity has been atoned for. But the coal itself, there's nothing magical about the coal. This coal was pointing to something else, but Isaiah doesn't explain what it was. Chapter 7, we read about Emmanuel, this one who would be born of a virgin whose name would be Emmanuel. Okay, now we're getting a little bit clearer, right? Emmanuel means God with us. That's what we love about Christmas time, right? God with us. But still, there's a little bit of mystery there. Chapter 9, if you ladies were here on Friday for the um, uh, Christmas fellowship, Jen took you through chapter 9. There would be a child who would be born whose name would be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You see, Isaiah is continuing to give us glimpses of this one who would be coming in the future. Chapter 11, it says a shoot from the stump of Jesse would come. Last week, we talked about chapter 24. In the final judgment, we got this picture of a desolated land. And yet there were people who had survived this desolation and they were singing for joy to the righteous one. The question we asked last time is, who is the righteous one? Okay, he continues in in chapter 28. We didn't talk about this, but in chapter 28, the Lord says there would be a cornerstone in Zion. Okay, and then in chapter 32, there's another reference to a king reigning in righteousness. Isaiah gives us, there's this whole um, dark sky in the first 39 chapters, okay, of gloom and judgment and despair, and yet, here and there, there are uh, patches of blue sky where the sunlight comes through, but it's really quite mysterious. We really don't know what Isaiah is getting at, and he's continuing to march forward in making his case and revealing this one who would be coming, All right. Any questions about those um, references? It'll become clearer as we get further in uh, Isaiah. Okay, so then, that's the first 39 chapters. Then in chapter 40, we begin a new section, 
and there's a new figure known as the servant. Okay, this is again a mysterious figure that Isaiah begins talking about in chapter 42. He's simply known as the servant. And as Randy mentioned last week, there, have, there are four what have been called servant songs of Isaiah. The first one is chapter 42, if you would turn there. Chapter 42, verse 1. You see, this is the Lord speaking. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And on and on it goes. This is the first servant song. The second one comes in chapter 49. If you turn to the right a little bit, chapter 49 Okay, this, this time, this servant song is a little bit unique because it's the servant himself who is speaking. Verse 1, listen to me, O coastlands. This is the servant speaking. He says, the Lord has called me from the womb. Uh, verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. Verse 3, here we go. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Interesting. That's a little bit mysterious. Israel, okay? Well, we won't spend much time there. <laughs> I'll come back to that. Go to chapter 50. This is the third song. Chapter 50, verse 4, is the third servant song. It starts in verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. He continues talking through verse 9. Look at verse 9. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And then verse 10 uh, is a different speaker. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Okay, so verse 10 tells us that the servant is the one who's been talking for the past few verses. Okay, these songs are building in a crescendo to chapter 52 and chapter 53. So if you would go to chapter 52, starting verse 13, I just want you to see where these songs are located in his book. Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Wow. So we're going to dig into this one in just a second, but I want you to see what Isaiah is doing is He's building a crescendo to this chapter. The whole book of Isaiah hinges on this chapter. This chapter is the answer for how a sinful people can be redeemed and, in fact, glorified and be called righteous. Okay? The question is, how can a person be called righteous? And it's not by, be, by doing good things, right? It's by chapter 53. We'll talk about that. <clears throat> but there's a little bit of mystery here. Who is the servant? Who is the servant? Do, do you know how, what some of the theories are or who the servant has been? <laughs> well, what was that? Okay. Um, do you remember someone in the New Testament who wanted to know who the servant was? 
Do you remember this? Ethiopian, yes, Ethiopian eunuch, exactly. The Ethiopian eunuch read Isaiah 53. Philip was, uh, was running along next to the carriage, and he's reading the scroll, and, um, and Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, oh, how can I unless someone tells me? And so uh, Philip says, okay, well, give me the scroll. What are you reading? And he reads from Isaiah 53. Then the eunuch says, tell me. Who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or another person? Okay, do you remember what? This is, this is worth turning to if you want to turn there. This is worth turning to. Acts chapter 8. Philip's response is amazing. Acts chapter 8, verse, 30, uh, verse 34. Acts 8, 34. He has just quoted uh, Isaiah 53, Acts 8.34. About whom does the prophet uh, say this? Is it about himself or is he talking about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told him, the eunuch, he told him the good news about Jesus, right? (laughs) The New Testament answer is consistently, Isaiah 53 is talking about Christ. But the question is, as good hermeneutical students, (laughs) if we didn't have the New Testament, could we identify Isaiah 53 as the Messiah? Or is this some New Testament invention of the Old Testament that the Old Testament Testament never uh, intended? Because that is what, if you know a Jewish person, that's what they'll tell you, is that Isaiah 53, the servant is the nation of Israel, okay? And they'll say that the New Testament misinterpreted the Old Testament, and and they incorrectly applied the servant to Jesus, okay? But I'm here to tell you, and you'll see, today, we can look at Isaiah 53 alone in context and come to the conclusion that this is talking about a single individual who would be both God and man, and who would die and be resurrected. Okay? There is no question Isaiah 53 is talking about Christ. So, um, let's go back to Isaiah 53. I think it's time now. Oh, no. Uh, let, me, let me just mention, I put a little graph there on your chart. Uh, to be fair... Jewish people who interpret it, they are not just pulling a rabbit out of a hat, so to speak. If you look in chapter 49, you remember I made that reference in 49, Isaiah 49, that God calls his servant Israel. Okay, if you look in 49, verse 3, and he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I have in whom I will be glorified. So when a um, Jewish person comes to these servant songs, they take they interpret all of them. They say all of these are always only talking about uh, Israel, the nation of Israel, no one else, no one less. And yet we know as we go through the context, you'll see this cannot be talking about the nation of Israel. In fact, I've got this little pyramid graph there for you. Um, Isaiah is somewhat narrowing the scope of who this servant will be. 
He begins in chapter 41, and you can look up these later, chapter 41 and 42, by indeed referencing all of the nation as the servant, okay? But then here in 49, he's indicating that this is a subset of actually the whole nation, because if you look in verse 5 of chapter 49, the Lord says, "'He who formed me from the womb to be his servant,' to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Okay, So one of the jobs of this servant is to bring Israel back to the Holy One of Israel. So though he's referencing uh, in verse 3 that the servant is named Israel, we know that, uh, that God is narrowing the focus to a subset of faithful Israel. Okay, that's what he's saying. There will be a faithful Israel who will bring back the whole nation of Israel. But in chapter 52 and 53, God continues to narrow the scope down to a singular individual who will be the one who brings, who redeems the sinful people. Okay, did I confuse you with that? <laughs> All right, thank you for that. <laughs> Well, I think it's time. Let's just go to chapter 52 and 53. This is amazing. And we just, I, we just need to spend our time here going verse by verse through the tree, chapter 53. Uh, let me begin by making some comments about the structure of this section. Um, one, I've made some comments about the chapter divisions, and here you can see, again, the chapter divisions were not inspired. I need to make that point again. Someone else came up to me this morning and thanked me for my comment last week. Uh, Calvin says very plainly here that chapter 53 should have began three verses earlier, okay? And it's clear from this passage that 52.13, chapter 52.13 is where the servant's song begins, okay? So Calvin says uh, they made a mistake. 53 should have begun a little bit earlier. But I want you to look at the structure here, okay? It's very intentional. There are three verses in five groups. Let me say it uh, backwards. There are five groups of three verses each. One, two, three, four, five. Do you see that? Chapter 13 through 15 are a group. One through three are a group. 4 through 6 are group, 7 to 9, and 10 to 12. So in your outline, I've tried to show that by indenting, uh, because what we have here is what's called a chiastic structure. And all that means is the focus is the middle of this structure, okay? So Isaiah, as he's writing this, he wants us to hone in on verses 4 through 6. That is the meat of what we're the most important part of this most important chapter, it's verses 4 through 6. And you see it's remarkable in the way he has gone through. Uh, the first three verses act as an introduction. The next three verses are the birth and the life of the servant. The next three are his saving work. And then the next three are his death and burial. And the final three are a conclusion to the whole chapter. So I just want you to see there is structure in this chapter that sometimes we can miss if we're just reading through it and not paying attention to the groupings of these verses. So, let me just read it. I'm just going to read this chapter, okay? And so just listen, follow along. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to dive in verse by verse through this chapter. 52, 13. 
Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Just amazing. Because we know the New Testament, it's impossible to read this without thinking of the cross, right? Isn't it impossible? (laughs) Um, And yet, there are so many who come to this passage and are completely blind to what um, God is telling us here. And we'll see why uh, as we get into it. Okay, let's talk verse by verse through this. We're going to start in uh, the introduction, uh, verses 13 through 15. 
okay? The introduction, verses 13 through 15, uh, we can call this the exaltation and the humiliation of the servant. Look how high verse 13 starts. My servant shall act wisely, he shall be high, lifted up, and exalted, okay? A threefold repetition of the exalted nature of the servant. This should remind us of Isaiah chapter 6. Do you remember that? In the day that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Same exact words, okay? This is a big clue to the identity of who the servant is. These words, high and lifted up, are not used of people other than the Lord. If you look in chapter 6 and chapter 57, these words, high and lifted up, are applied exclusively applied to the Lord. And in fact, here, he goes beyond what he said before. Not only is the servant high, lifted up, but he is exalted, okay? So here is our first clue. This, this must be someone other than a person, a, full, a, a, a sinful person, okay? Because if God is high and lifted up, there's no way that a sinful person could be high, lifted up, and exalted above the Lord, Right? That's our first clue. There's, someone, there's something about this servant that makes him high and lifted up. Some, some commentators take this reference to the resurrection, ascension. Sorry. Um, yes, that's right. No, the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Christ. They see this threefold exaltation as resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Christ. In fact, again, it's hard to read this verse without thinking of Philippians 2, right? That God has exalted him and given him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and tongue confess that Christ is, what is Christ? He's the Lord, okay? That's from the, this is from the Old Testament, okay? We're not even to the New Testament yet. So, notice how high the servant song begins. This is the Lord speaking. Notice in verse 13, this is the Lord speaking. And then notice verse 14, how immediately low the servant is brought. From exaltation 13 to his humiliation in verse 14, people were astonished at the servant. Why? Why were they shocked? Why were they horrified at the servant? Because his appearance had been so marred that he did not look like a man anymore. Okay? His appearance had been so marred that it was beyond the resemblance of a human. This servant, I see this servant with my eyes, and it does not even look like a human person. He has been so marred. Again, you would need to be blind to, to read this and not think about Christ. He continues in verse 15. Um, so shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Why? Why will these kings shut their mouths? For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Okay, verse 15. Let me explain this. this, this the reason why the kings are shutting their mouths here is not because of his appearance. Okay, verse 14 People were horrified at his physical appearance. Verse 15, something else, something glorious is happening here. Okay? These kings, for the first time in their lives, 
are understanding the gospel and they are astonished at the gospel message. This verse is quoted in Romans, uh, Romans 15, is it? Romans 15, yeah. This is Paul's reason for why he didn't want to build on the foundation of another. He quotes this verse. He says, I want to go to the places where no one's heard the gospel before. No one knows, um, has ever heard the name Jesus. I want to go where they have never heard the name of Jesus before and tell them the gospel message. And when they hear it, this is how they will respond. They will clothe, close their mouths in astonishment. And it just made me wonder... If, if, that's your, if that's the testimony of any of you, that you have, when God saved you, you were uh, dumbstruck, as it were, with the gospel message. You have, may have heard it hundreds of times before, but for, in one instant, he opened your eyes and your mind to see the gospel, and you were speechless. Okay? That's how these kings are responding. And notice, this is going beyond the scope of Israel. These are kings, Right? These are outside kings from the corners of the earth. Uh, These are Gentiles, right? (laughs) So, the question is, did everyone respond this way? Did everyone understand what was happening here, the gospel message? And the answer is no. Look at verse 1. Okay, this begins the new section, verses 1 through 3, suffering observed and misunderstood. Look at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Please note the speaker has changed. This is now Isaiah speaking as a representative of uh, people who understand the gospel. Okay, I'll keep it as vague as that. Um, Isaiah is speaking as, uh, from the perspective of those who understand the gospel. And he's saying, who believed our message? Who believed this gospel message? It's more, it's more of an exclamation rather than a question. In essence, he's saying, um, rather he's saying, no one has believed this message. I spoke this message, no one has believed it. Who has believed it? No one has believed it. In fact, he'll go on to, we'll talk about the, um, the incredible nature of this message. Why would someone believe this? This message is not... Um, a natural message. This message goes beyond all natural reasoning. The answer he gives in the second half of verse 1, and this is so enlightening, the message is only believed by those to whom it has been revealed. Right? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In essence, no one will believe this gospel message until God reveals it to them. And I'm sure that many of you um, resonate with that from your testimony. You may have heard the gospel a hundred times, but you did not understand fully the substitutionary work of Christ until he opened your eyes, uh, and it was no effort of your own. He did it. He opened your eyes. So I want you to see this is what God has done for the kings. He opened their eyes in, in verse 15 to understand the gospel, but... He did not open everyone's eyes. So why was this message so unbelievable? Well, look at verse 2. It's so unbelievable because this servant who would be high and lifted up, he did not have an exalted beginning, right? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, 
no beauty that we should desire him. Okay, the New Testament, um, the critics of Christ, they said things like this. Is this not the carpenter's son? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Okay, that's how the Jews responded when Christ came. This can't be the Christ. He is just growing up like a normal person. He's a carpenter's son from Nazareth. There is no way that he is the Messiah. That is what makes the message so unbelievable. I want you to notice quickly, he grew up before him. Uh, Let's get our pronouns straight here. He, the servant, grew up before him, the Lord. Okay, So this is the mystery of that the servant would be the Lord, and yet he would be distinct from the Lord. Okay? And this can only be fulfilled in Christ, the one who was God and yet was man as well. The Trinity, this is what we're seeing here. The distinction, the unity yet distinction. He grew up before him. The servant grew up before the Lord. Let's continue on. Um, verse 3. What was the response? How did the people respond to his life, his growing up? Well, he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And this one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We saw him, um, we surveyed him, and we said, this man, he's not worth my time. I'm not esteeming him. Uh, My judgment is he's not worth it. He's not worth my time. He's nothing. He's a nobody. Okay, that was the response to the, the servant in his growing up life. I want you to notice quickly, I mentioned this last time, these are all past tense, these verbs. He grew up, he was despised. Okay. Again, this is 700 years before it happened, and yet Isaiah is using the prophetic perfect tense. It's a past tense, and yet has, it's already happened in a sense because it's so sure, the fulfillment of it, though it's 700 years before it has happened. So that's the suffering uh, that's the suffering that's observed. Uh, but let's move on and see verses 4 through 6, the suffering explained. Okay, um, uh, Verses 4 through 6, again, this is the heart of the passage. And verse, In fact, verse 5, if you had to pick one verse, verse 5, which is the middle of the middle of the middle, uh, is the one verse which we, sh- we should um, paint on our living room walls. <laughs> So, verses 4 through 6, this is the suffering explained. So, the servant was suffering in verse 3, but why was he suffering if he was sinless? Verse 4 through 6, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amazing. If you had to pick one verse in the Bible to explain the gospel, this might be the best verse in the Bible. Verse 4, 5, and... If you had to pick three verses. Verse 4, 5, and 6 <laughs> to explain the gospel, okay? Again, notice how misunderstood his suffering was in verse 4. We, Isaiah is is implicating himself, we thought that he was being punished for his own sins. 
We thought that God was striking him, smiting him, afflicting him for something that he had done. We completely misunderstood it. Okay, until God opened our eyes and we saw he was being punished for my sins. Amazing. Okay, we have a word for this. Um, penal substitutionary atonement. You heard that word before. The theology, that word sounds very um, dry, but the idea behind that theological word is so profound, and it comes from this verse here. Penal substitutionary atonement, all that means is that Christ died for our sins, right? <laughs> Penal means he was paying a penalty. If, if you look in verse 5, pierced, crushed, chastisement. Okay, those are penalty words. Substitutionary means on our behalf, okay? He was pierced for us, crushed for us. Uh, upon him was the chastisement. Uh, 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 let's see, uh, verse 6 the Lord has laid on him our iniquity. Okay, so that's substitutionary. Penal, he paid a penalty. Substitutionary, he bore it in our place. Atonement, he brought us peace. Look at verse 5. His chastisement brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. By his penal substitutionary work, he has now made us at one with God, at one meant, atonement, right? We now have peace with God by the work of Christ. Amazing. If you look at verse 6, Isaiah is implicating all of us. All we have gone astray. There's not a one of us who hasn't gone astray. Every one of us. We've turned where? To our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, please note, the onlookers thought that the servant was being smited by God, and they were right. Verse 6, the Lord laid. Okay, the Lord was the one who laid this iniquity on Christ. But the onlookers were completely wrong about whose iniquity Christ was paying for, right? Uh, it's the same instance of Job, Job's miserable friends. They came to Job, they saw the suffering he was going through, and they assumed this man is suffering for some great sin he committed, but they were dead wrong. Okay, How much more wrong <laughs> were the onlookers of the crucifixion who said, this man must have been a terrible sinner for uh, having suffered so much. That is the suffering explained. Why is it that the servant would suffer? Verse 7 to 9 uh, the amazement continues, and this is, this is just amazing, just amazing. Verses 7 to 9. Uh, his suffering was voluntary and undeserved. I want you to see verse 7 is his procession to the place of crucifixion. Verse 8 is his execution. Verse 9 is, is his burial. Okay? Verse 7 is his procession as he's going to Golgotha. Verse 8 is him there. Verse 9 is him being buried. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Let me ask you a question. Why are sheep silent 
when they go to the slaughter, or any animal for that example? Why are animals silent when they go to slaughter? What's that? They have no idea what's about to happen to them. Oh, I, he's taking me for another walk this morning. I don't know. Right? They have no idea. Jesus Christ knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly what would happen. And what was his response? Silence. Submission. Silence. He did not even open his mouth. This is a um, masterful comparison to the Old Testament Levitical law. Okay, all throughout, I'm sure you've picked up on it, all throughout this passage, Isaiah is saying the Old Testament sacrifices are pointing to Christ, essentially. You, we see this priestly language all throughout here, this sacrificial language. It's obvious that Isaiah is comparing these Old Testament sacrifices to Christ. And yet, we know the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, right? It would take a willing sacrifice to bear the sin of willful sinners, okay? Um, animals were not willingly sacrificed. They didn't volunteer, they didn't volunteer to be sacrificed, right? Right? You and I voluntarily sin. Every day when we sin, we choose something. We choose to sin, um, something that we want more than obedience and glory to God. Because of that, it would require a willing sacrifice to atone for willful sinners. And this is exactly what Christ did. If you look in verse 8, it describes his death. He was taken away by oppression and judgment. Again, if you look uh, here, there's more misunderstanding. As for his generation, who considered, who, who, who even considered this? That he was cut off, that is, he died. He was cut, out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. So again, there's misunderstanding here. Who considered that Christ would have died for my people? Verse 9 is his burial. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. This is interesting here. Um, Isaiah is giving us uh, something that should have us pause and ask a question. Why is it that the servant would be in, uh, with a rich man in his death? We understand why he would die amongst the wicked uh, because he was bearing our iniquity. But yet, why would he be with a rich man in his death. Well, he continues, the, he gives us the answer uh, in the second half of verse 9. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Okay, this is the first hint of uh, the future exaltation of Christ, that Christ would be with a rich man in his death. This is just a taste, and we'll see it in the next few verses here, that God would somehow... Uh, honor this servant for what he did. Of course, we know. I mean, it's imp I, I don't even think I need to draw the comparisons, do I, to the New Testament? <laughs> he died between two robbers. He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, right? I don't even need to make that comparison. It's so obvious when you read Isaiah 53. Okay, let's keep going. This is the last section. The conclusion. 
exaltation through sin-bearing suffering. And this, if you remember back in the very first verse, my servant shall be high and lifted up and exalted. The question is, when is that going to happen? All we've been reading about so far is down, 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 low, 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 lower. Well, here in verse 10 is when it happens. Yet, it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, the servant. The servant shall see his offspring when? After he has made his offering for guilt. He, the servant, shall prolong his days after his guilt offering. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Amazing here. A direct reference to the resurrection of the servant How is it that after he has been cut off from the land of the living, he shall see his days? It can only be through the the miracle of resurrection. Amazing. Um, Let me back up to verse 10. I don't want to skip over this. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. This pairs with verse 6. If you look back up at verse 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay, this was um, a plan, right? This was a planned event, the crucifixion of Christ. This message here that it was the will of the Lord to crush him is not a popular message in Christianity, okay? But this is the only gospel-saving message that we have, that this was the will of the Lord to crush him. We learn from Acts 2 and Acts 4 that it was through the hands of sinful men that Christ was crucified, They were acting merely as secondary agents, right? Instruments in the hand of a sovereign God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This was the will of the Lord to crush him. Um, Enemies of the cross, they'll call this divine child abuse. Have you heard that before, divine child abuse? Yeah, they completely misunderstand the willingness of the servant Okay, they completely, what they're, what, basically what they're saying is, uh, it's like the Old Testament sacrifice, it's like animal abuse or something. Okay, the animal had no choice. Okay, Christ had a choice. He willingly went without opening his mouth. This was, Randy uh, mentioned this before, this was a plan before the time began, a Trinitarian plan where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit made a plan to save us. And all parties were willing. Christ knew what would happen. He knew the suffering he would endure, and he willingly went. Okay? That is how it, it pleased the Lord. It pleased him. The obedience of his son, the sacrifice of his son, it pleased him. I want you to see verse 10. There are offspring generated. He shall see his offspring. Who are his offspring? Okay? All those who believe in Christ become his offspring. We'll see that in verse 11 and 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is the servant. He shall see. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is the Old Testament version of 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
He made him to be no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that there? <clears throat> the righteous one. So God the Father is calling his servant righteous. He has righteousness in verse 11, first half. And he will make others righteous. He will make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Do you see that? It's the great exchange. We don't have righteousness. He has righteousness. We have iniquity. He does not have iniquity. He took our iniquity and gave us, and gave us righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is the great exchange. What he's done. So these people, his offspring, they are the many of verse 11. Okay, verse 12, again, he ends on a triumphal note. This is a theme of victory. Therefore, I, this is the Lord speaking again. I'm sorry I didn't point out that transition. Um, uh, okay, verse 10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's still Isaiah speaking. Verse 11, my servant. So we know verse 11 has transitioned back to the Lord speaking, which is why it's got this kind of chiastic structure. He circled back um, because the Lord was the one who began speaking at the first part of the, of the message. I, the Lord, I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because, why? Because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressor, transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There is this spoil this is a victory. This is a victorious end here that Christ has made a victory here. And the Lord doesn't just give the portion to just the servant, but amazing of all amazing, he gives the portion to those who are counted as righteous with the many. They're all tied together. His offspring are the same as those who are counted righteous, who are those who are the many, who are those who are the strong, who are those whose iniquities have been paid for by Christ. All of it. And God says that he will give us a portion of the spoil, a portion of the victory. Well, um, that took all of our time. I, didn't, I wasn't sure how much time this would take, but this is just an amazing passage of Scripture. I don't know if I had ever walked through it verse by verse before, but... Um, you would have to be blind to read this and not see that this points to Christ. And that is exactly the case. And let me point out, it is not us who has the ability to see this. Only God can reveal this to us. And this is amazing. This is amazing that Christ has paid the full weight of the penalty for our sins. And he's brought us peace, right? He's given us peace with God through his atoning sacrifice. Amazing. So this is the salvation that comes through the servant. This is the hinge point of Isaiah, how, how God will forgive sinners, redeem a whole host of people, an incalculable number of people. Uh, it is through the work of this one servant. So where does that leave us? Well, next week, we're going to talk about the future glorification. What is our future? Okay, what God not only is redeeming a people, he's redeeming a land, he's redeeming the earth, he's redeeming a whole bunch of things. This is all just 
a part of God's big plan to redeem all of his creation, right? So uh, it'll be exciting. I hope you're blessed this morning. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, um, this is amazing that you would send your son, your dear son, in whom your soul delighted, that you would send him, that you would pour out your wrath on him, not for anything that he had done, but only because of what we had done, the filth, the sin that we had committed against you. Father, you paid it. You put it all on Christ. Jesus, how amazing it is that you willingly went to the cross because of your love for us, that you went like a lamb without even opening your mouth. Father, we praise you for this truth this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes wider to see the love that you have for us and to see the finished work it's done, the finished work of Christ. Father, we, I pray for Pastor Dan this morning that you would hope, uh, assist him and empower him as he preaches your word. I pray that you would open our ears and eyes again as we hear your word preached this morning. And Father, we pray it all through Christ's name. Amen.